I'm Michael Shoulder. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, we identified almost 16 million environmentalists who did not vote in the 2014 midterm elections, 10.1 million who didn't even vote in the 2016 presidential election. 10.1 million, Michael, in an election that was only decided by 77,000 votes. With two months until the midterm elections, in the state of Florida alone, 961,000 environmentalists are considered unlikely to vote in November. My guest says he knows who they are. We have a 73-year-old Latina woman who lives in Hallandale Beach, Florida. And there are three generations in her household, so she's probably a grandmother. And she hasn't voted in a non-presidential election since 2010. In the state of Georgia right now, 290,000 environmentalists are also considered unlikely to vote. My guest says he knows who they are, too. We are targeting a 38-year-old Caucasian single mother living in Alpharetta, Georgia. She has only voted once in her entire life, and that was in the 2012 presidential election. In all, Nathaniel Stinnett and his Environmental Voter Project is targeting 2.4 million environmentalists in six states. Registered voters who list the environment as one of their top two priorities, but they have such poor voting histories that they are really unlikely to vote this fall so unlikely that we don't think anybody else is going to be reaching out to them. 1,700 volunteers around the country will be doing the outreach. As you'll soon find out, the message those volunteers deliver is not what you might expect. Nathaniel Stinnett, founder of the Environmental Voter Project, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. It's tough to know where to start your story, but... I feel like it should start after a loss. And it sounds like you got the idea for the Environmental Photo Project, or at least the path to the idea, came after a loss of a candidate who you were working for. Absolutely. So I had just finished running a campaign for mayor up here in Boston, where I live. And it was a very narrow loss. And so first, let me back up a little. For over a decade, I had been involved in political campaigns. But after this mayoral campaign happened, I stumbled across some data that totally blew my mind. We found that environmentalists, regardless of the election, pretty much regardless of the state, always vote less often than the rest of the population. And that's a big problem. And that has a huge impact on how policy is made. Because if voters don't care about a particular set of issues, there's no way that politicians are going to. You have very dramatic numbers in your data that tens of millions of people who consider themselves environmentalists do not vote consistently. Is that right? Yeah, so this was in the lead up to the 2014 midterm elections. And I happened across some polling data that broke out how different populations felt about particular issues. When you looked at the people who were likely to vote in the 2014 midterms, climate change and other environmental issues were way, way towards the bottom of their priorities. But then when you looked at all American adults, 
but it was somewhere near the middle. And I thought, well, that's interesting. The more data I looked at, the more I realized, I think the environmental movement has a turnout problem here. And so what was the tipping point? Because my understanding is you didn't just rely on existing polls. You went out and did some more research that was driven by this insight that nobody else seems to have picked up on. We looked at some enormous polls that had been done, and we invested in some research as well. And these were polls of tens of thousands of people across the country asking them what their number one and number two issue priorities were. And then what we did was we cross-referenced their answers to their actual records in the voter file so we could see which people voted and which people didn't. And we found some truly amazing information. In the 2016 presidential election, environmentalists turned out at 50%, whereas all registered voters turned out at 69%. So there was an enormous difference. And if you go back to the 2014 midterm elections, it was even worse. 44% of registered voters voted in the 2014 midterms, but only 21% of environmentalists did. Have you figured out why that is the case? Unfortunately, the answer is no. And believe me, it's not for lack of trying. We can't figure it out. And you know why? Because when we poll anybody, not just environmentalists, but anybody, and ask them when they don't vote, what are the reasons? You know what happens? They lie their pants off. They lie their pants off. They swear up and down that they vote all the time. Take me inside one of the campaigns that you managed or served in some capacity and just bring that to life for me. Let me use the example of the Boston mayoral election that I was running as campaign manager. When we announced, we had, I believe, eight months until election day. And so the first decision we make, which by the way is the same first decision that any political campaign makes, is with this limited time and limited money, who are we going to talk to and who are we not going to talk to? And this might sound basic, but we have public voting records. It is so important, so important that your listeners internalize this basic fact that whether they vote or not is public information, because that right there is the lifeblood of all modern campaigns. And so we can look up and decide, okay, which of those registered voters is actually likely to show up in our election? And those people, those people are the ones who are first-class citizens. They drive policy because they not only decide who's gonna win or lose an election, but those are the only people we poll. And so now let us come back to your project, the Environmental Voter Project. How many states are you going through the voter rolls and identifying environmental voters who have not, this is what's unique about your project, who are not likely voters and you wanna turn them into likely voters? That's exactly right. We zig where campaigns and other groups zag. 
We're trying to change the electorate. We're trying to fix this environmental voter turnout problem. So whereas campaigns focus on likely voters, we talk to the unlikely voters and try to change their behavior. And I'll tell you some of the numbers we found. First, I'll start big. I'll start nationally. We identified almost 16 million environmentalists who did not vote in the 2014 midterm elections. 16 million. We identified 10.1 million who didn't even vote in the 2016 presidential election. 10.1 million, Michael, in an election that was only decided by 77,000 votes. These are enormous numbers of environmentalists who, if we just started to get them voting, they could drive policy at the federal, state, and local level. How did you get that number, and why are you confident in the number 10 million? So what we do is it's called predictive modeling to individually identify voters who care about particular issues or who support particular candidates. And here's how the process works. You start by polling 10 or 15,000 people per state. So these are enormous polls. And what we do is we simply ask them, what's your number one most important issue? And what's your number two most important issue? And then what we do is we isolate the people who list climate change and the environment as their number one or number two priority. And then we start cross-referencing those people with all the data that we know about them in the voter file. So their age and their gender and their party affiliation and their street address and their ethnicity and all this other information. We use all of this data and we build a model that we think will help us predict how all the other people in the country feel about climate and the environment. And it's a long iterative process, and sometimes the models work and sometimes they don't, and we test them and refine them and we test them and we refine them some more until they're frighteningly accurate. And then the very last step is, once we think we've come up with a list of all of the registered voters who deeply, deeply care about climate and the environment, we send that list out to an outside polling company and we say, hey, can you check our work? Can you call up a random sample of these people and ask them off the top of their heads what their number one and number two priorities are? And the worst score we've ever gotten on one of those tests, the worst score, is that 88% of the respondents off the top of their heads say that climate and the environment are their number one or number two priority. Is there sort of a composite picture that you can draw for us of the environmentalist who is unlikely to vote until you can reach them? So the first thing I'll say is behavioral data and consumer data is much more predictive for us than ethnic data. If we know that someone just bought an electric vehicle, or if we know that someone subscribes to National Geographic, or ditched their landline and only uses a cell phone, information like that is far more valuable to us than knowing someone's age or ethnicity. That being said, to get to your actual question, the predominant stereotypes of who environmentalists are no longer hold true. We're not talking about wealthy white yuppies anymore. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say that a Latina grandmother living in Phoenix is now much, much more likely to care about climate change than some hipster in Brooklyn or Portland is. So we know that Latinos and African Americans are now much more likely to care about climate change than Caucasians are. And we also are able to isolate certain age groups and genders and other groups that deeply care about these issues. I'm going to interject here because after our conversation, it occurred to me that it would be useful to hear some personal profiles of real individuals the Environmental Voter Project is targeting. We could, if we had time, introduce you to more than two million of them. But I had Nathaniel Stinnett record descriptions of just a small sampling in Florida and Georgia, two of the states he is targeting, just to get a sense of the diversity of people who fall into the environmentalist category. A lot of the data that we use to identify environmentalists is anonymized, and so I don't even have access to it. But some of it is publicly available, and some of it we can see. In Miami, there is a 33-year-old Latino woman who has only voted in presidential elections. We are tracking a 26-year-old single Caucasian woman in Melbourne, Florida, and she has never voted once in her life. And we are tracking a 40-year-old Caucasian single man in Cocoa Beach, Florida. He recently moved from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he only has a cell phone and no landline and he has not voted in a non-presidential election since 2010. These are all environmentalists in Florida who are unlikely to vote this year, and we're trying to turn them into voters. In Georgia, we're targeting a 58-year-old single African-American man who lives in Sewanee, Georgia. He has only voted twice in his life, and that was in the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. We're targeting a 64-year-old African-American woman who is likely a grandmother, judging by there being two other generations living in her house. She lives in Atlanta, and she has never in her life voted in a midterm election. Finally, we are targeting a 38-year-old Caucasian single mother living in Alpharetta, Georgia. She has only voted once in her entire life, and that was in the 2012 presidential election. Again, these are all environmentalists who are registered to vote, and we're mobilizing them by canvassing, calling, texting, direct mail, digital advertisements, because their voting history leads us to believe that they're unlikely to vote this fall. Before we continue with our conversation, I want you to know that I plan to circle back with Nathaniel Stinnett right after the midterm elections. I want to find out who among the people he just profiled and the other 2.4 million environmentalists the Environmental Voter Project is targeting ended up voting. And remember, whom they vote for is a secret. Whether they or any of us vote is public information. So it'll be fascinating to hear how many unlikely environmental voters on Stinnett's list turn out to the polls. Now back to our conversation. So now that you know the who, tell us about the specific strategy, because if it were me, and I'm certainly not alone, 
this would be a clear case of getting the message out to the who's out there and to say, hey, did you know you're not voting in large numbers and you, you could be the swing vote that turns a local, a state, a national election. If you really care about the environment, please get out there and vote. That's not your approach, though. That's not. What you just said, Michael, is a very logical, rational argument to try to get someone to vote. And you know what? It doesn't work at all. <laughs> we have tried that, and a lot of people have tried that. But the latest behavioral science shows that peer pressure and social pressure are much, much more powerful drivers of turnout than trying to rationally convince someone of the value of their vote. And I'll give you a really elegant example of this, Michael. If you call someone up and you say, Michael, you've got to vote on Tuesday because turnout's going to be low and your one vote is going to make a difference. Well, that message is mathematically accurate, right? Right. If turnout is low, then your one vote in the numerator has a much higher likelihood of making a difference. But studies have shown that that message not only does not increase turnout, but sometimes it has decreased turnout by as much as 2%. But get this, if all you do is flip the script, if all you do is say the opposite and say, Michael, you've got to vote on Tuesday because everybody's voting on Tuesday. Well, now the denominator's enormous and your one vote in the numerator has an infinitesimally small likelihood of making a difference. So you'd think nothing would happen. But actually that message increases turnout one and a half percent, which might not sound like a lot, but that's everything in this business. I mean. Ask Hillary Clinton how big a deal 1.5% is. It's everything. And it turns out that everything we learned in middle school works the best. Peer pressure and social pressure. We're still much more susceptible to going with the crowd or adhering to societal norms than we are to logic or reason. I mean, that sticker, it's a brilliant sticker, by the way. The I voted stickers that you get at the polling places because clearly... I would imagine those stickers induce some people to vote when they were thinking, man, maybe I'll skip it today, because everybody wants to wear that to show we're civic-minded. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the most powerful tools we have at the Environmental Voter Project to turn a non-voter into a voter is to use peer pressure. Peer pressure works. And so you're absolutely right. Those I voted stickers do make an impact. And so if we can come up with messages that take advantage of those societal norms and use a little peer pressure and use a little social pressure, well, those messages are what really change behavior. And so now let's get specifically to the states that you're involved in. You're armed with these lists of voters that my understanding is other campaigns are probably not really looking at because they're not likely voters. That's exactly right. Most other groups don't have a long-term goal. All they care about is making sure their candidate wins on a Tuesday in November. So they have to talk to the likely voters. But we have a different goal. 
We're trying over one, two, three years to so change the electorate that nobody can run for anything without talking about climate change or other environmental issues. And that's why we go after these ones. If you succeed, you're going to change the electorate without that particular portion of the electorate knowing the difference they might be making. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Let's talk about how you're trying to succeed. And by the way, you started before you said you had your first child. So I had the idea before our first child was born. Her name is Abigail. She's now four years old. I'd say I spent six months kicking the tires and every day becoming more and more convinced that we had to start this project. Then about a year getting ready to launch it. And then in the summer of 2015, we launched a crowdfunding campaign and we crowdfunded $400,000 to launch the Environmental Voter Project in the fall of 2015 in Massachusetts. And so from those beginnings, how many states are you operating in for these all-important midterm elections? We're currently in six states. We're in Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Each of those states have enormous populations of non-voting environmentalists. And in those six states, we're targeting 2.4 million already registered environmentalists who have such awful voting records that we think no one's going to talk to them for these midterm elections. And we need that. We need a target-rich environment in order to have a really big impact. Since I'm out of Georgia and have a following in Atlanta, so Georgia is a target-rich environment for environmentalists who aren't voting but could vote. Can you give me some numbers? Yes, we are targeting 290,000 already registered voters who list the environment as one of their top two priorities, but they have such poor voting histories that they are really unlikely to vote this fall. So unlikely that we don't think anybody else is going to be reaching out to them. But we're laser focused on those 290,000 Georgians. And we're calling them, we're canvassing them, we're texting them, we're sending them direct mail, and we're sending them digital advertisements. And we have an army of over 1,700 volunteers around the country who are helping us communicate with these 2.4 million environmentalists. We're preaching to the choir. We're talking to people who are already persuaded. We're just, we're just trying to make them sing. Is it the broad macro national data that they're giving these unlikely voters to try to convince them to vote, or is it hyper-local data? We try to get as localized as possible. So I'll give you some examples of the messaging we use. We might send you a letter and we'll say, hey, Michael, did you know last time there was a midterm election, 93 people on your block of Main Street showed up to vote? And that makes you think, oh my gosh, all of my neighbors are voting. I've got to vote too. Sometimes we do scorecards. Sometimes we'll say, compared to all of your neighbors on your block of Main Street, you have a C-plus voting record. 
we really try to revert to middle school. <laughs> Peer pressure and social pressure work, and everybody wants to keep up with the Joneses, and everybody wants to be thought of as a good voter, even if they're not one. It's almost what teenagers refer to as the fear of missing out. You want to make everybody you're talking to think that they are the only one who's going to miss this election. And what I'm gleaning from you is, if I'm contacted by your organization before the election, and you try to get me to pledge to vote, perhaps I should expect a call from you after the election, and if I didn't vote, I'll be hearing about it. That's exactly right. And we're not only going to call you after the election, we're going to call you right before the election. And those pledges that you're starting to see more and more often seem very simple, but there's actually some very sophisticated behavioral science behind them. This is what's going on. What they're trying to do is take advantage of the fact that most Americans want to be thought of as honest, trustworthy people. And so if I get you to promise to vote, Michael, I can then follow up right before the election and say, Michael, just as a reminder, you made a promise that you were going to vote. And Tuesday is your opportunity to follow through on that promise. And we know it's important to you to be an honest and trustworthy person. What we've realized is that making sure people continue to be viewed as honest and trustworthy is far more powerful than convincing them of the value of their vote. So yeah, the Environmental Voter Project absolutely uses voter pledges. It's a really powerful way of getting someone to take an action that they otherwise wouldn't take. Have you tested this enough to have a sense of how many non-voters or irregular voters you convert to voters? Absolutely. So we are the data nerds of the environmental movement. All we do is test our own work. Just to make sure I heard that, the data nerds of the environmental movement. Yes, yes. <laughs> Whenever we mobilize environmentalists, we submit our work to randomized control trials. And what that allows us to do is, with real scientific rigor, test how much we are responsible for increasing turnout whenever we message to these non-voting environmentalists. And the numbers we've been getting are pretty stunning. So whenever we mobilize environmentalists, we've increased turnout 2.8 to 4.5% per election per election among this cohort of people. But remember how big this cohort is. 10.1 million environmentalists stayed home during the 2016 presidential election. If we had been a national organization then, we could have added almost 300,000 voters to the electorate in an election that was only decided by 77,000 votes. So have you ever put your strategy side by side, say, with perhaps one of the more effective single-issue-based groups, the gun rights advocates, the NRA is very powerful, in terms of numbers of untapped voters that climate change in the environment has versus the tapped voters of the Second Amendment issue? How would you say that stacks up in terms of potential? Could this be another force that has equal power in its own sphere to the gun advocates? Not equal power, Michael. It could be bigger. 
it could be bigger than the people who really care about gun rights. There are more people in the United States who deeply care about climate and the environment than there are people who deeply care about gun rights. Not many more, probably about three million more, something like that. But here's the big difference. All of the people who really care about gun rights already vote. They vote like it's their job. It's one of the most important ways that they express themselves as gun owners. Whereas most of the environmentalists are staying home on election day. To come full circle, because it's always fascinating for me to know and for people out there to know, what drives people? What is it that you want to be able to say to your kids five years from now? I want them to be proud of me, and I want my wife to be proud of me. There is no doubt that I want them to think that at this existential crisis that our species is facing, at this extraordinarily important moment in time, when everybody, by the way, is being divided into heroes and villains, that their father and their mother did everything they could to fight for what was right. I realized that after that mayoral campaign, I was at a moment in my life where I was privy to some important information and I had a special set of skills that made me realize there is a problem, a very significant problem, that I'm uniquely situated to try to solve. And it was almost like I was playing defense. It was almost like I was saying to myself, man, if I don't jump at this opportunity, will I ever be able to forgive myself? If I want to be a good father, if I want to end up being a good grandfather, I need to do this. But the truth is, I am the world's most reluctant entrepreneur. This isn't something I went skipping and whistling into. This is something I put my head down and walked into because I thought I had to. But I would take it a step further and say, we're all in this situation, Michael. Never before in the history of humanity has a generation had the opportunity that ours does. We will quite literally either save the planet or be the generation that loses it. That's scary to a lot of people, but we can literally all be heroes. We can be these heroes in a science fiction movie who quite literally save the planet. This is so extraordinary. That's a call to action, if I ever heard one. Is Melanie involved in the Environmental Voters Project in an official way? Like in every family, I think when one person starts something new like this, everybody has to pitch in. And so I can say with absolute confidence that the Environmental Voter Project would not exist if it weren't not only for my wife Melanie's efforts, but for her giving me the courage to do something that was really hard and kind of scary. And to be honest, it's still kind of hard and scary every now and then. Starting your own nonprofit is not an easy thing. How did she give you the courage? Well, she made me realize that we had saved up enough money from me practicing law and her running a nonprofit and writing that we could take a risk like this. It was still a risk, and we both knew it had a pretty high likelihood of failing. I mean, 
most people who start something new end up failing. And this wasn't even a for-profit startup. This was a non-profit startup. And simply knowing that the most important person in my life wanted me to give this a shot and would have my back even if it failed, even if it failed miserably, was really, really important to me. That absolutely gave me the courage to do something that I wasn't ready to do. And the final question is, look, the ultimate hope and the ultimate dream for anybody who cares about the environment is that it really becomes a bipartisan or let's say nonpartisan issue. And so one day it may be that the Environmental Voters Project steers a fair amount of people to both parties, provided both parties are responding to that particular quest. And they will. They will. There's one thing that every politician has in common, Michael, whether they're Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative, and that is this. They go where the votes are. Either you go where the votes are, or you don't get to be a politician anymore. And so if we dramatically increase the number of environmentalists who vote, it won't just be liberals who start leading more on the environment. It will be moderates and it will be conservatives. It wasn't that long ago that Republicans were the leaders on climate change in the U.S. Senate. And you talk to great climate leaders in the U.S. Senate, like Sheldon Whitehouse, and they'll say, I don't want to out any of my Republican colleagues, but I can tell you there are eight to ten Republicans who would lead on climate change. They would lead on it if only the votes were there in their districts. And so if environmentalists show up and start voting, this can absolutely be a bipartisan and nonpartisan movement. If you truly care about climate change and the environment, the most important way you express yourself is as a voter. Voting, voting is the highest form of environmental citizenship. And this year, real environmentalists vote. Nathaniel Stinnett, founder of the Environmental Voter Project, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. It was my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. Conversations.